Welcome to the Localization Fireside Chat. I'm Robin Ayoub, your host. Join me for captivating conversations with industry leaders exploring localization, translation, and global communication. Ignite your curiosity as we expand your horizons through these conversations. So let's dive in together into the Localization Fireside Chat. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Localization Fireside Chat. My name is Robin Ayub. I'm the founder of this young channel that is dedicated for the localization conversation. This is an independent conversation. It's an independent channel. It's not influenced by anybody, just my personal initiative who decided to, there is a room for conversation in this industry that's unbiased, unscripted, that we can sit down with individuals such my my wonderful guest today that is joining me, Mark Schreiner, who works uh, for MemoQ, and he's also the CEO of MemoQ RFP, which I can't wait to find out a bit more about that. Mark and I have known each other for many years, and we really talk business most of the time when we talk, but we thought that today is we'll get to know who the person is, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the business that he's in and the, and the uh, opportunities that this is creating for the industry. So thank you, Mark, for joining me this, this afternoon, and it's morning for you where you are. Thanks for being part of this conversation. I really appreciate it. And let's get going. If you don't mind in your own words, just we say on this channel, everybody's got a story, you know, and yours, similar to mine, it's dated a little bit, goes back a few years. From the start, where did you start in localization and how did it all happen to you to enter the business? Well, first off, Robin, thank you so much for inviting me on your on your podcast. You know, I do a couple different podcasts and I've only had a few opportunities to be the guest. And so it's kind of interesting to have the tables turned here and I'll, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. In terms of, you know, my start in localization, uh, it started off in 2008, but it, let me, let me just give you the background. I had spent maybe about six, seven years working in leadership roles in Asia, you know, country manager, Korea, a regional sales manager based in Hong Kong and so on and so forth. I'd moved back to the U.S. and was working, I tried a couple different jobs. I started to work with a company called Adequest that was doing project management localization for Microsoft and I was doing sales for them. And my friend who was the CEO at the time, Hiram Machado, offered me the position while I was researching the industry, I came across in Multilingual Magazine this advertisement for a job, CEO Asia Pacific, for for a, an unnamed company, but they listed out all the requirements. They wanted entrepreneurial experience, pan-Asian experience, a, a lot of different things. And I, and, I, and I took that home and I showed my wife and I said, look at this. This is everything that I've done. And it just match, it maps exactly to, and she's like, you're right, you, you, know, you got to do something. And so I was talking with Hiram about an opportunity with him, but I had this, this, this other job that I came across doing my research for the industry. And I, I reached out to the recruiter. I wrote a very, you know, long email detailing or, or making it, stating the case of why I would be the great, uh, you know, a good fit for this position. And uh, the recruiter came back and she said, you know what, you're right. You are perfect. Unfortunately, we already have a candidate that's going to the final round. And so it's probably it, it's probably not going to work. So I took the job with Hiram at Adequest. Two months later, the recruiters uh, contacted me. She said, are you still available and interested? And for me, it was the dream job, right? CEO, Asia Pacific. And I said, everything that they were looking for to line went through an incredibly, the most rigorous, well, CLS is a Swiss company. They, they put you through the, the paces, a very rigorous uh, interview process that included you know, multiple, multiple interviews, but also flying out to Zurich, spending a few days there, and then going to Princeton, New Jersey to have something called psychometric testing done. And I was like, oh my God, how, you know, they're going to, they're going to find something here. But fortunately I made it through and, and I got offered the job and that was my first, you know, stop in the localization industry. I worked for CLS communication for four years. We had offices in Singapore, Hong Kong, Shanghai, and Beijing, key accounts in, in, in Japan. And I really loved it. And I worked with some, you know, our, our former colleagues, including Florian, and we were able to grow our revenues in Asia by about 500% over those four years. So it was great, great yeah, first step in this business. Absolutely. And I remember like when we, I was, when I was working at CLS and <clears throat> first, we first met each other at one of the sales conferences, I think it was in. Zurich, one of those get to get global get together, I guess, for yeah. CLS. And you were working at the time in Asia and China, I believe. And I was, I was wondering like when you, because a lot of people are, you know, 
we work in a global economy now and you know everybody can work and live anywhere they want to pretty much did you have to move your family to china or how did how did you ha handle their personal affair i know when somebody take on a position like this it's exciting it's amazing as you mentioned earlier but how did your the rest i know the rest of the family handled it well as i said you know prior to that position i'd already worked in asia for six or seven years so you're already um, there it, it, so well we'd moved back to the us but my family is, is relatively international i mean my wife's from south korea uh, my first son, Marcus, was born in Hong Kong. My second son, Makai, was born in South Korea. Our youngest son uh, was actually the only one that was born in the U.S., but, you know, when he was two years old, we got this opportunity with CLS, and so we packed up the whole family, and we moved to Singapore. Now, living in Singapore is, is much easier for a non-local than, for example, moving to China, okay? That that would be a, a much more dramatic step to to kind of pack up the whole family and go to China, especially at that time. So it wasn't that big of a deal for us. In fact, Singapore, you know, it's we call it expat light or because it's, you know, it, you can communicate in English, everything's set up. They have so many different people from around the world there. Um, so it's a great place to live. And uh, we had four years there and it was, it was a great experience for the family. And Mark, for those we mentioned a little earlier about your current role, now that we got to know you a little bit on a personal level, let's talk a little bit about where you are right now. What do you do? And if you don't mind explaining a little bit about your role now. And, and I know you have a, an exciting new initiative on the go. I'd love to know a little bit more about MemoQRFP that we mentioned earlier. Yeah, so about two and a half, three years ago, I started working with MemoQ as the strategic sales director, which is basically to help MemoQ expand our, our footprint in some um, target markets, uh, basically life sciences and financial services. Um, excuse me, I was also asked to kind of help out with some other strategic initiatives, for example, helping out, um, help to uh, accelerate our growth in Asia. Um, but I was brought in on another project that was um, to help kind of improve or optimize our RFP response process. RFPs are requests for proposals and RFIs are requests for informations. Um, the, they are a necessary evil in in all industries you know um, companies if you want to sell to large organizations oftentimes you'll have to you know participate in this rfp process but a lot of companies don't have a defined process or tool to kind of optimize and so what happens is an rfp will come in and a, and a business development manager say like hey i got this now what do i do and they'll go running around the organization trying to get all the different stakeholders to kind of fill out their respective parts of that questionnaire so you'll have somebody that will talk about, you know, the ESG part, the, you know, the environmental, social and governments, and you'll have somebody who'll talk about HR, then you have somebody who'll have to answer the questions about finances, and then you'll have somebody ask questions about the product or the platform and then security. And so you have all these different subject matter experts, and you need to corral all their expertise into responding to, this, to these RFPs. And it's kind of an annoyance for them, right? Because it's like, hey, you were just here last month, and I had something similar. So what we did is we looked at one how can we optimize the the uh, the process but two is there a way that we could leverage some of our existing technology to store previously submitted responses so like you know what we do in a translation memory and then repurpose them and reuse them and we optimized the process and we're able to use some of the memoq technology we actually hired another former co colleague amy uh, who, who yes. worked with Singapore, and she came in to run the whole thing. She's and Canadian got, now, by the way. Yeah, she is. She is. <laughs> she's in a. She's in one of the places that's even colder than where I'm at right now. So uh, I can't uh, believe she's in Winnipeg. I don't know I how know, she does right? it. I know. For for somebody who who's you know grew up in the Philippines and then spent 10, 15 years in Singapore, that's got to be a shock, right? <laughs> so <laughs> so she did an amazing job. The the results were amazing, and we started looking at okay, you know this technology piece is it. Is there a market to productize this? And we did a, a fair amount of market research. We brought in an external consultant. And the results were, you know, hey, what? There are some solutions out there. They're not using our particular approach. And, and we think there's an opportunity. And so long story short, MemoQ invested in a spinoff, a completely separate entity, a U.S.-based corporation that is now a startup called MemoQ RFP. And we're developing a SaaS platform to help companies, regardless of the industry, to help them respond to RFPs, RFIs, security questionnaires, et cetera, in a more efficient manner. And it's pretty darn exciting. I mean, we're, you know, we've got the dev team in uh, Budapest. 
we were, we're doing the foundational sales and marketing efforts. We've already signed up 15 beta customers. And so, yeah, pretty exciting times. Oh, excellent. Now, one of the, you know, if you don't mind me asking a few questions regarding the RFP platform, uh, sure. one of the, how did you solve or how did you tackle the problem of if a customer is not on MemoQ platform anyway, they're not like your necessary, or they are, I don't know, using your platform initially, the initial platform, and then they need, they, or they decided, or they want to go to the MemoQ RFP, what is the deployment strategy for uh, the new customer? Like, how do you take their current inf information ingested into the system without spending amount of days, hours, months yeah. on taking that information and mapping it into an RFP system? Yes. Yeah, so just to make it clear, they're completely separate platforms. Okay. And you can buy it independently. You're saying. Yes, you buy it independently and the, even the technology itself, even though we're, we're leveraging some of the conceptual technology that was used at MemoQ to, to help MemoQ solve this problem, we're developing our own, you know, from the beginning, we, we're, like, we're, we're leveraging some of the lessons learned at MemoQ, but in terms of the technology, completely separate platform. And there's, there's, yeah, so we're, we're targeting companies that regardless if they're a MemoQ user or not. Okay. In terms of you know, it's, it's, it's very analogous or analogous to if a company has never used a translation memory before, but they have a bunch of bilingual documents where you can align them to build up, rapidly build up your TM, your translation memory. Mm -hmm. We have a process where we can take previously submitted RFPs and map the, you know, the, the questions to the answers, put that in the database. And then we're, we will have two ways to respond. One will be the database response. And then obviously we'll also have a generative AI response because with RFPs, you probably know this, a lot of the response, it's one part science, one part art, where you want to put the kind of a marketing spin on some of the of your answers, right? And that's where AI can kind of come in and help kind of make things more readable and, and, and just kind of do that in a more efficient way. And less dry, I would say, right? Yeah, hopefully so. <laughs> so, so you've integrated an AI or gen AI module inside the B platform. So instead of being a, a platform collecting pieces of information related to answers for a particular RFP, you're taking that and then you're adding on top of it to answer a bit more salesy flavor to them. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm giving you a simplification, but basically the users will go in and they will first, the, you first will pull up all answers that we can from the database that, you know, the answers that you've submitted before. And then if there's no matches that meet your requirement or meet your, yeah, what you're looking for, then you can use the AI and give the AI some instructions. That's the, you know, the adaptive part, right? Uh, the other part with the AI is you can, you can, you know, obviously you can tell it to look at these specific resources and create an answer based upon what it's finding there. Uh, but you can also give it instructions, for example, and make it readable to a certain grade level or, or, or make it, if you wanted to make it sound more marketing, have use it, you know, more to have more polish it, you know, you have to edit this part out. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, I, you, uh, that's my next question I was going to ask you is that if, are you thinking here, the, when somebody uses the software, I guess there's always that hybrid model, right? So software and human. Uh, yeah. integrated together in the same work environment as we see in localization software or any other software in the world. Now, for this particular one, MemoQ RFP, if you look to look at it like a 100,000 foot level, what is the percentage of a human versus software efforts in this, in this, in this platform? Well, you're absolutely right. There will be a hybrid approach because the the database will rarely, or the platform will rarely be able to answer 100% of the questions in a 100% accurate or desired manner. So you always will want to have your subject matter experts in the, in the, in the, in your organization, take a look at the proposed answer and make edit to it. So it's very analogous, like I said, to the, the use of translation memory, where you get a match yeah. it's a match or a fuzzy match. So the translator has the opportunity or the option to go mm -hmm. in and kind of refine it or polish it. Yeah. And, and I love the idea of, of putting AI in it because Sometimes, and you know, we all respond to RFP and sometimes the RFP answers in some parts of the RFP are the same, regardless of the industry of that RFP generated from, right? So, and specifically around, you know, specific things, not necessarily items that they're geared toward that industry, but 
some general building blocks, if you will, of, an, of a response. But it would help also to take even those gen, gen, uh, general answers and turn them a little bit, tweak them a little bit using AI to the industry that you're responding to. You know, be it environment, environmental industry, or be it a you know technology industry, etc. So, because the reader now of that proposal can, I'm assuming, based if you gear it toward them, then they can read it better, relatable. They, you know, you want to move away. I'm assuming in writing an RFP from, you know, the old dry fashion of writing an RFP where somebody's going to read it like it's okay. So boilerplate template versus something that is customizable or customized to their industry, to their needs specifically. 100%. And I, and I didn't come here today to, to, to put my RFP sales hat on, but I would, I would, you know, just say one more thing that another application of, of AI, let me back up. One of the biggest challenges with RFPs that companies have responding to them is deciding, do we, do we, try or not because it's a it's a big commitment of resources to to kind of fill out these some of these documents can be 60 70 100 pages long right some of them are multilingual right so mm -hmm. you might have to you know pay for the translation etc so do we do we want to invest the time here is there is there a potentially enough return on investment for us to commit the resources and how do you decide that? I mean, you've got a business development manager is like, yeah, let's go for it. But then you've got product managers that are like, you know what, our product doesn't really do that. So that analysis step is critical and it's important in the process. But how can you leverage AI to help you determine what's our pot potential win rate on this? And yeah. that alone is another application of AI that can help companies, again, optimize the response. Because you could you know, you could say that, you know, based upon what you've submitted before and based upon what the CRE excuse me, the key selection criteria are, AI says, you don't have a snowball's chance anywhere. So, so you maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe you don't want to, uh, you know, commit the resources to that. So that's, a, that's another application of our, of AI. There are others as well, but you know, we will be, we'll be announcing more as we, as we get to launching our MVP, which will be early next year. Of course. And so moving on to another topic that you and I have done a couple of podcasts together on which is rebranding. And you and I have talked about rebranding several times, uh, wondering if, you know, the name has, you know, that you've chose for, or somebody chose for the new company, is the name is going to stick forward or is that a name, temporary name that you're going to rebrand down the road? Am I, or am I prematurely asking the question at this point? Uh, no, I mean, I, I think it's a good question. What we looked at is Definitely, we wanted to leverage the MemoQ brand in the beginning because it's a it's a very strong brand in our industry outside of the the localization industry, not so much. Um, but it gives us a story to tell, and it, you know, and again, we without even having the MVP, we signed up 15 beta customers. A lot of that was based upon the strength of the MemoQ brand. Okay, now, 12, 18 months, 24 months down the road, when we're talking about our next round of funding, are we going to keep that brand? There's a lot of discussion about that. My guess is, is that we would probably look at some type of modification, something that would make it uh, more relevant um, across uh, all all industries. Because our real target is small, medium-sized enterprises, um, you know, globally, regardless of the industry. So we're definitely looking at a rebrand. But let's let's build get some traction first. The whole thing with the SaaS-based platforms is uh, when you're in the startup mode, is get that MVP out there, get feedback from the market, get traction which depending on which industry you're at and what time means different things, but typically it's a hundred uh, paying customers that are, you know, helping on a subscription basis. Once you have that, you've got proof in the pudding that you can go and then you can go to the VCs and say, Hey, we want that, that next round of funding. And that's, that's the kind of the game that we're in right now. I mean, I mean, I see a huge opportunity in this because it, this goes beyond the localization industry and selling to LSPs, you know, product management, sorry, localization management software or TMSs. This goes around, it's a horizontal software. Like it can go around to any, any industry, really. It doesn't matter what the industry is. It's a huge, it's a huge opportunity. My, my wife works for a, you know, medium-sized company that does playground equipment. Guess what? Uh, probably about <clears throat> 30, 40% of their sales is governmental to cities, counties, school districts. And those those opportunities are all won or lost via the RFP process. Guess what? If you have a platform that helps you optimize that, that yeah. company 
more competitive. They can, one, they can figure out which ones they have a better chance of winning and focus on those, but they can also have, because they've optimized the response, they can go out and participate in more RFPs, potentially win more business. And yeah, so basically any industry that you can think of, uh, it's funny doing the research for this. I would, you know, I looked at various RFP portals, you know, you have things like, you know, the SAP and the Arebas, but you also have every state in the U.S. has a governmental state portal for RFPs. And uh, you know, there was one in the state of California that had this huge RFP for rat mitigation. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> and, like, and if you think about prospective customers, I would, you know, I, I wasn't going to put, you know, rat mitigation experts as a potential marketplace for the RFP platform, but apparently, so <laughs> it, it's a very, very broad market. And that's, I got to say, I mean, I love the localization industry I, it, it, for so many different reasons that we can get into. One of the things that is limiting, though, is if you are a language service provider or, in the case of MemoQ, a technology provider for this industry, you're kind of restricted a bit in terms of what you can do. I don't, I don't know. Do you, do you ever feel that way? I, I feel, you know, on this channel, I always talk about, you know, expanding our services and expanding the horizon and look at the localization industry as part of the knowledge-based industry, right? We're yeah. not just localization industry. And what you just talked about right now, this service or product that you're offering, this is the example of ideas that they're grown from a localization industry, but they're offered outside of our micro industry, if you will. And, you know, I'm, the, you know, I'm sorry to say micro industry because it is in comparison to other industries, you know, pharmaceutical, uh, automotive, et cetera. You go to local world or gala, you know, the biggest industry events, and you might have six or 700 <laughs> people. There. When I was working for a Microsoft cybersecurity com compliance partner, I went to a Microsoft event in Las Vegas and there were 40,000 people there, 40,000. And that's a Microsoft event for all their partners, right? So that's not even a like a, an industry event like CBIT or something, you know, I mean, this is, this is, so, you know, you, you look at these consumer electronics shows, for example, or the pharmaceutical industry, and you would have hundreds of thousands of people. Now I'm not knocking the local industry. I'm just saying, I mean, I, I'm just agreeing with you that it's, it, you know, a micro industry. I mean, you know, the, the numbers are, are are significant in terms of total revenues, but in terms of like serious industry players, it's a, it's, you know, a couple handfuls. Yeah. Look, I mean, the entire industry, everybody knows that I'm not, you know, telling any secrets here. If you put, take the entire industry, put it into a spreadsheet and sort it from the top down by the revenues, you know, you've got, you know, 80% of the revenue generated by this industry at the top 20 companies and the rest of it is just small to medium enterprise at the bottom. And there's 19,000 companies of it. When I went to, funny you mentioned the, the size of the conferences. I personally, in the localization industry, I hardly, and you know, I do but not always attend industry events. And sometimes I do, you know, it depends on uh, my schedule, but most of the time- We've been missing you, Robin. We've been missing you. I'd love to, I'd love to see you guys. And, but um, just an example, like you've mentioned about the Microsoft, I attended the HIMSS, 2007 or 2006, I can't remember when, long time ago now, it was in New Orleans. There was like 65,000 people attending and yeah. that's a healthcare conference, right? And in, so our industry has a lot of potential because we've got a lot of brain power, a lot of knowledgeable in individuals in the industry, a lot of professionals in our industry to grow something in the industry and take it beyond the industry. Similar to what you guys are doing with the horizontal sort of a service or, or offering that you're offering outside of the, for the industry and outside the industry. You're not in it anymore, you know, stuck within the boundaries of, of what's going on in our industry. You, you have the freedom to do anywhere. Now, let's shift a little bit of focus on, you know, you and I have been in a sales game for many, many years. Let's talk sales. All right. So what was your worst sales hire and your best sales hire? If I can ask you that, and I don't want to put you on the spot. And if you can answer that. You know, that's funny because I, I always say that the most important thing you can do is hire the right people. And I think Jim Collins, you know, he, from the Good to Great book, has he had the thing about get the right people on the bus. And the um, the best successes that I've had have always been because we've had a great team or we've been able to build a great team. The, the example of CLS in Asia was exactly because we were able to build a great team. One, I had a great boss, Doris. She gave me a huge amount of autonomy and then she would come out and support two or three times a year, 10 day visits. And we would do this forced march through Asia, five customer meetings a day, just boom, 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 nonstop for, for two weeks. 
So at that, but then the team that we built with, with Florian, with Anita doing finance, with Dylan doing sales in, in, in China and, and a couple of others that was just like, it became so fun because we were good at what we were doing and we, we knew what the customers are. We, 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 we understood what, the, what they were looking for and we could deliver it. And that feels so good. So to your point, hiring the right people is important in sales Oh my God, I've had so many good, bad, and ugly experiences in terms of hiring. And I, 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 I may, I'm not sure if I can pick the, 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 the absolute worst one. My philosophy, though, is to, what's the word? To cut your losses as soon as possible. If you find that somebody's not going to work out and, you know, you can put them on a plan. And if they make it, if they really make a sincere effort to, to kind of turn things around, it is possible. But a lot of times, because we're dealing with adults here, they've learned their work habits, their ethics, their communication styles throughout their whole life. And you're not going to be able to get them to turn on a dime. A lot of people, especially salespeople, interview really, really well. Um, but because they are salespeople, right? But the but then, you know, I can typically tell within the first week, two weeks, but let's just say at maximum, it's a couple months because you can look at activity levels. And that's what I look at, activity levels and the quality and the honesty in terms of the feedback. And you can usually tell. So I can't give you a specific one, but I've had some nightmares. <laughs> and that's how you learn. That's how you learn. How about yourself? You you tell me a story. Well, this is higher? this is crazy because, I mean, we're sharing here, right? So it's not me like asking questions. I'm just having a conversation with you. On my side, I mean, I've had the good, bad, and ugly as you did. And we call them <laughs> similar to what you said, you know, get the right people on the bus. You know, the worst here we can do in sales is, you know, we call them round pegs, square holes kind of thing. So it doesn't fit. And if right. it doesn't fit, it means it doesn't fit. And absolutely like you, I measure activities. Absolutely. You got to keep an eye on activities and you got to see deliverables. And the, there is a, there is a notion where, you know, micromanaging versus, you know, non-micromanaging and just managed by rely on the professionalism, the individual to do what they're supposed to do. And you keep an eye on the reports, on the statistics, on what the deliverables are. But in some cases, you got to roll out your sleeve and you got to get into the weeds. And I hate that. I'm not a, personally, I'm admitting this online. Uh, I'm not a kind of a detail kind of guy, but I do it, but it's not my comfort zone. And I should be a lot more into the, into the weeds from where I am right now. So I feel like in sales in general, you have to get the right professional people to do the right work. And you're right. Absolutely. In a few weeks, you'll tell you tell if this is going to work or not. I mean, we used to use sort of like the 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 conversation that you just have, had earlier when the when CLS was having a conversation with you. They sent you to what is it, New Jersey, to have that uh, Psycho, the, psychometric testing done. Psychometric test. SHL. They subcontracted with a PhD at Princeton, New Jersey. No pressure. <laughs> no, no pressure. So I spent, are, check it out, man. I spent a full day with this guy one on one, and you? I'm like. <laughs> I would be interested in reading about results. No, not just to tell anybody. Right, I just right. like to just like to see that. But there is a there was a company we used to do. I used to deal with does something similar, less intrusive than one day, and it would tell me exactly what that individual is in terms of the high level characteristics of their personalities. Right. So mm -hmm. it would tell me if they're detail oriented. It would tell me that they're you know they're personable. They're outgoing. You don't want to obviously you don't want to hire you you don't want to hire an introvert for an extrovert based job. You, you want to make sure that you have outgoing people that they can reach out to people. And so these high high level characteristics, you, you got to make sure you nail those down before you get into the weed of, do they have the right CV? Do they have the right experience? Can I do the job and get into that detail, right? So, but then after you hire them, the proof is in the pudding and you've, yeah. got, and you've got 90 days to deliver. And I don't know how that some people do it. Some people make it, some people don't. So a couple of things. I think that part of the onus is on us as the hiring managers or the team to make sure that they have a good onboarding experience. And uh, that sets the tone. They have to know the product. And, you know, and so you got to, they've got to do part of the work, but you've got to do part of the work. They got to know the team. They got to know who do they reach out to, to get the, uh, the appropriate level of support. So that's really important. So you can't just hire somebody and say, Hey, go get, you know, go make a million bucks. Uh, so I, I do believe that onboarding is important for that knowledge part, but also to show, to demonstrate to the new hires that, hey, we're taking this pretty seriously. We expect you to as well. So we're investing in you. And, you know, I had some great 
you know, you asked about the the worst case, uh, worst scenarios or worst examples. I, I, I kind of blocked them out of my memory, but I, I I've had some great hires. You know, like Dylan Dylan Young in China. He built that organization from three people to I think we, when I left it was over forty people in China, and that was just based upon because he was selling so much, and then he hired a couple other people that were selling underneath him, and so incredibly. And I remember having a conversation with him. I you know my first time we met. And he, and I was like, I'm a little concerned, you know, and, and he's like, Mark, trust me, here's the plan. Here's the plan. And he had a plan and he worked the plan and, and it worked. Other ones, Amy, that we talked about, she didn't have a sales background. She, she had worked in as a, you know, in the healthcare and, but she, she, she interviewed very well. She seemed very sincere and she had that kind of like roll up your sleeves and I'm going to go for it mentality. And she did an amazing job. And, and, and so, so that was work, a, a good experience. Florian, Florian didn't have any sales experience. He was our, he managed a, a, a linguist team of, of like, I think it was like four to six Swiss linguists in Singapore. And then he, we, we moved him to take over country manager, Hong Kong. And as part of that, I said, if you're going to take over that role, you've got to be able to sell. And so I still remember this. He probably remembers this before we got into the thing about cold calling and we took out the American Chamber of Commerce directory. And I said, call one. You know, we practice like what you'd say. And he goes, I don't know. I said, so I'll call one. I said, hi, this is Mark from CLS Communication. I'm a former, or excuse me, a fellow member of the AmCham Singapore. And our CEO is coming to town next week. And I'd like to introduce you something like that, right? That's all you do. And if they, all they can say is yes or no, right? And okay. so he started doing it. We start cold calling and he became like incredibly productive sales person, but also he led that Hong Kong office and, 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 and developed some, some really strong people as well. So those are really re rewarding experiences. And you got me on a rant here. One of the things I like about sales is, is you can quantify the results. You can say, look, look, look at what we brought to the table that we didn't have, have, have here before. There's no ambiguity, you know, some people say, oh, well, he had the easy territory or he has that, you know, whatever, man. At the end of the day, if you took something from zero and, and took it to a million, or you took something from a million and took it to two or whatever the, you know, the Delta is there, you've demonstrated your success. There are a lot of business roles you know, we can get into like the 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 nuances of marketing positions, et cetera, where the results aren't as easy to quantify. And people can hide behind right. that kind of of well, yeah, you know, things look to be, seem to be going well with sales. It's it's pretty much black and white. Absolutely black and white. And you hit the nail on the head on a couple of points I wanted to mention, and I want to explore a little bit further. Is that leadership enables success, and uh, leading by example is a great idea to get people onboarded, and even for existing teams. Even till today, you know, in in my role, I still generate leads. That's you know, I that's what I that's what I do, and you know, it's many things that I do, and that's part of it. It is uh, not necessarily just to make sure that my team is knowing that look, you're not alone. I'm doing it with you, and if you have any obstacles, you're not alone as well. So you call me, and I'm in any conversation, any deals, anywhere you want me to parachute, I'm in to support you close a deal or find somebody or talk to somebody who in whichever capacity you want me to be in. One of the things that we, I think sometimes beside hiring the wrong person, sometimes leaders create bad salespeople. Sometimes, you know, and, and, and sometimes it does happen. just maybe the management style or the way, you know, they come in all gun ho, they want to do a great job. And somewhere, somehow the air was taken out of the tires. I don't know. But in some cases, leadership has a tremendous effect on the productivity of a salesperson. Can you comment on that? Sure. Well, let me go to your first point, though, first. And uh, you know that, that, that in terms of like creating leads or finding leads for your sales team, creating opportunities, that's what I think uh, one thing that Doris was super good at. She, she was able to leverage the, the, her network in the Swiss banking community in Asia to open up a lot of doors. And I remember meeting with like the consular general for Switzerland in Hong Kong. And he would say, oh, well, you need to talk to this person or that person at Credit Suisse and, and doors just open. And I think that a good sales or, or good business leader does that for their team, or they can do that. And it was, I and the rest of the team were so appreciative to have somebody do that. And then as I, you know, it developed in my role, that's becomes my objective right now. I mean, right where I'm at, both with RFP and at MemoQ, I look at myself as a kind of a door opener and, you know, try to create opportunities and then pass it on and then just shut up and let somebody else take the, the credit for it. In terms of I, what the second part of your question was? 
Yeah, the second the second part is around you know when we hire people, we in either you know they're coming into the office or to the job, full of energy, full of positivity. They're taking on a new job and they're looking forward to it. Somewhere, somehow, for the first six months, that gets deflated, either by not onboarding them correctly. Something happened that that energy drops, and all of a sudden, maybe we did not put the right tools in place, or maybe there are some misconceptions somehow. I was well, just asking if you can comment on that. Yeah, it, I mean, I think that you were commenting like does, from the leadership side, you know, what what sometimes happens to kind of cause that effect. And what I found, again, again you know, we're dealing with human beings. The most complicated thing in the known universe is right. ears up here, right? So it's, it, it's it, we all have these different experiences. I found that the the it's important to create a team environment, a welcoming environment. And part of that is probably because I spent a big part of my career in Asia. Most of, you know, Asian cultures are more kind of team-based, consensus-based versus the, you know, the rugged American individual kind of thing. But if you create a sales organization where it's dog eat dog, you know, and then you ring the bell every time this guy gets a win. And then, you know, I've heard of organizations where the underperformers, the boss would take the list of the people who were below quota and put it on the bathroom wall, right? You know, stuff like that. If you, you want to drive or demotivate people, that's a, probably a pretty good way of doing it, right? And, and so I've always looked at it as it's better to create incentives that in that reward a team effort, especially when you're selling complex things like you know software tools, because I don't care how great a salesperson you are, you're going to need a solution engineer and or a, a solution architect, somebody from business services to help you close that deal. It's a team effort. And so let's reward that team effort and let's recognize the team versus the individual. Now, of course, you get a big deal, Robin. I'm going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to have you tell that story to the team on the Monday morning sales meeting and tell you how you, you know, explain to the team, how did you find this prospect? What was the steps, everything like that. But in doing that, I know you're going to recognize the team. So for me to answer your question, and it's a complex question, but the simple answer would be try to build a warm, supportive team environment versus this all boiler room, you know, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, you know, if you don't sell, you're out on the street kind of thing, because I mean, those days are gone uh, for most industries, as far as I'm concerned. ABC is gone, right? Always be closing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always be closing. Yeah. <laughs> I say, I say, ABL always be learning. Um, That's right. Because every time you go into a sales meeting, I make mistakes. You make mistakes. The worst thing you can do is beat yourself up on it. Walk out of the meeting and say, "Okay, what went well? What didn't go well? The stuff that didn't go well." Some people just dwell on it for days and go, like, "Oh, doesn't help you." write it down and say, what would I do next time in that situation? And then memorize that. And guess what? You just got smarter. That's the, you know, you just paid for your education with a little bit of, a little bit of pain. Absolutely. But. And you, you bring a very good point. First, you had to remind me about Glengarry, Glenn Ross, and I'm just can't stop laughing on the inside, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, coffee's for closer. Oh man, they bring a very good point in terms of working together to close a deal, specifically in a non-product sale. This is a service sale that has many angles to it and many expertise go into putting a solution together. This is not an environment where you have, where we have a bunch of widgets sitting on a shelf somewhere waiting for the purchase order to arrive. And then all of a sudden we start shipping it. This is more a, each one of those, you know, and that's why you, you did the, you started the mobile QRFP is because each one of them is different. Each, you know, requirement is different. If they were the same, you wouldn't need a software for this because in this case, it's a team sport. It is where everybody needs to pull together in order for us to win. You know, I have a bunch of people that come in on, we talk on this channel and many people tell me, you know, Robin, we need to, you know, how do we grow a company? And my objective is to grow the company like 50 to 60% or whatever the number they pick. And my first question, immediate question, is your team on board with mm. this strategy? Good question. Is your team on board? Is it just you wants to grow this or the entire team wants to grow the company to see? Because if you are the only one thinking and hoping to grow the company by that amount or any amount, and your team, your production team, your engineers, whoever they are, they're not on board with this strategy. You are either A, have to change the team or B, have to convince them to come on board with your idea. 
Well, okay. So, and I'm going to ask you how you would do that because, you know, if you look at the translation industry, it, it, it's actually a classic example where uh, a BDM could go out, win a huge deal. And they're like, yeah, I got it. And you have your operational team going like, how are we going to deliver on this? Right. And so you do need both sides on board. You need the whole team on board in the in that case. And, you know, let's put yourself in the, 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 the role of the, the business leader and your team isn't, they, they aren't really on board. They're like, Hey, you know what? We have this comfortable business. It just keeps, you know, repeating. And, and so what's the conversation you would have with them to help them get on board or understand the importance of getting on board? So, yeah, like over the years and, you know, uh, you are describing a typical example that happens every day in localization. That's not a one-off, unfortunately. Yeah. What you just, what we just described, what we're talking about right now, mm -hmm. it's a typical problem in the localization industry. Now, there are some companies that are more mature than others, and there are some companies that they can do better than others when it comes to those. And even with that, there's a separate discussion to be had because in the larger organizations, in, in a more dynamic organization, they have set certain processes to fit certain deals. And beyond that, the customer doesn't fit. And then you have to go to the next, to the next vendor to help you out. So the conversation is around from a, my advice and what I've done and what I've practiced in my, in my, pre, in, in my current and past life in the, with this in, within the same environment. Back in the days of Lexitech International till today, when the company was two and a half million dollars and you take the company to like almost 28, 29 million dollars by the time it was sold to CLS, there was a lot of transformation happening. And trust me, the internal team was not happy taking a company from two million dollars to 28, 29 million dollars over five years. It's like, what are you talking about? Like, this is completely un unreasonable. So the conversation was continuous conversation with the existing team and changing few key components in the teams. Those are not coming on board with the idea that we need to grow, we need to roll up our sleeves, we need to think creatively how to build solutions for customers. Those individuals stay on stay online if they take if they take the conversation to heart and they practice it. And there are certain individuals they say, you know what? They tell you they play the lip service sometimes. They tell you, oh, yeah, 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 I'm on board. But when it comes time to delivery, they don't deliver. So those individuals, unfortunately, they have to get off the bus. Yeah. <clears throat> and so communicating and selling the idea internally. And, and, and there is a saying in the localization industry, I hope I'm not the only one selling it. If, this, if the salesperson's time is 100%, there's about a higher percentage and varies by company. I've heard it as high as 80% selling internally. So... If you were to invest that 80% that you were trying to sell internally to sell externally to customers, you know, what would that positive result look like? And I'm sure it would be positive. Yeah. I, I really think it's part of the, the business owner and the leader to, to make it very clear why growth is important. You know, and there's several different arguments for it. One is pure survival. Okay. If you're not growing, you're, you're, you're shrinking, right? Sure. But also in terms of like, because a lot, everybody brings it back to themselves. What's in it for me? And sure. I, I have the conversations with my team and say, you know, where do you want to be in three or four years? Okay, do you want to be in the same exact role? Or do you want to take on additional responsibility? Or do you want to move into a lateral position? How do you want to develop yourself? And the, the, the people who, who you have on your team, hopefully they want to develop themselves and hopefully they want to take on additional responsibility. And if, if they do, then you make it very clear to them. The, the way for us to provide more opportunities for growth for all of our people, including you, is to grow this business. And, you know, it's not going to be easy, but I'm going to be counting on you to come up with part of the solution, which is another thing. Okay, so we're on this topic. I found it's super important. Again, I, I spent a big chunk of my career in Asia. A lot of times people are um, deferential to the boss. Tell us what to do. That doesn't work. It works when you have two people. <laughs> But when you've got a team more than more than two people, it just doesn't work, man. So you need people to come to you with their ideas and you have to kind of incentivize them and enable them, empower them is the right word, to 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 say, hey, you know, Mark, I think we should try this, or maybe we should try this, or what about this? And if you have a created an environment where people are sharing ideas like that, that solves a big chunk of the problem of how do we handle the growth. That's right. And and a lot of time, companies in, so by definition, the internal teams of localization business are a little bit objectionist to change. Oh, yeah. So, so <laughs> when you introduce a new customer or you need to introduce a new complex solution or whatever it is, 
even though it's viewed by the owners as revenue growth, but to the internal teams is a change. I'm comfortable, as you mentioned earlier, I'm comfortable in my own situation. Why should I change? And I'm taking it down to a singular, you know, level, like a project manager who's handling, let's say, 100 requests per day. Okay, so they're 100 requests per day. Now, you put a new customer in, and now they have to 100, 125 custom requests per day. It's a challenge. Now, as part of the growth strategy is the expansion, and then making the individuals who are responsible for production in various, various areas in the company, the formula has to apply to all of them in part, you know, what's in it for me, you have to show what's in it for them. Like sure. where we fail as an industry is we don't show them what's in it for them. No, you're getting paid your fixed salary. I'm going to pile on more customers on you, more, more demand, but I'm not going to increase your salary. This is, you know, I don't know how long that's going to work. It won't work because part of the expansion is everybody needs to have a skin in the game and have to get something in it for themselves. Yeah. I am. Um... I, I like having the conversation of, you know, what, what part of your job do you like and what part do you hate? What's the most tedious thing that you do? And, you know, it, let's figure out a way that we can alleviate that or remove that. Um, and, and growth could be part of that solution. Especially now with the advancement of technology, Mark. Exactly. That's the whole thing, invested technology. And, and I've had that conversation with maybe three different organizations where I've been in where project managers like, this part of the job is killing me. And I was like, tell you what, we'll invest in the tools that will take that away sure. from you take it off your plate and you're going to look like a rock star in front of your customers because you're going to be so much more efficient but we got to grow we got to grow man so you know, one sorry what, i just have i know i'm cognizant of the time yeah i don't want to take too much oh, no i i got I plenty of time man. i love to do? talk i'm highly okay. and i got plenty of time so <laughs> i still have one one point i want to ask is sales models or sales uh process that you prefer in the um business that you've done over the years and i'll start with myself by telling you I'm a big proponent of the Miller-Hyman uh, process in, 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 in localization, just because the complex and the strategic based selling and variety of decision makers being involved, et cetera. I feel like the Miller-Hyman one applies a little bit more for, for our types of sale, depends on what product or services you're trying to sell, but in general. For you, do you have any, anything to comment on which model you use and what do you prefer? Okay, so I'm going to answer that in two parts. One is, <clears throat> I have a, a philosophy, and then I have a process. And my philosophy is that we should be not selling, but solving problems. And that sounds cliche, but I do think that it starts at the bottom, where we're, 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 it's the foundational piece, I should say, where when I engage with a customer or a prospect, I want to find out as much as possible about their business and what challenges they're facing and try to help them find a solution, okay? I'm not here to sell you something. I'm here to try to help you. And I and I mean that. I mean, that's a, anybody that's worked with, I have customers that I've been doing business with off and on for 20 plus years, and they come back to me because they know that when they've got a challenge, they can talk to me and I can try it. And I'll be honest with them. I'll be like, I can, I can, I, I don't have an answer for you now, but let me go talk with the team. And it might even be a couple months, but do I have um, permission to come back when we find something? And they always say yes, right? So I think that's important. Honest, uh, open dialogue in, in, in solving problems. That's the underlying kind of philosophy. Um, the process that I use is, I, I, I would say I've cobbled together several different ones. And I, you know, I, I don't know if you know this, but I actually wrote a couple of books on sales, you know, and- yes, you did. In that book, I outlined a couple processes, one that talks about the external activities like cold calling and setting the agenda of a meeting and, you know, writing proposals and closing deals, et cetera. But then there's also the internal game because a lot of salespeople, they get beat up. They're like, oh, what if they say no? And oh, I've only got one meeting this week. And so I get this anxiety re related to that meeting. And so I, I talk about that, but I'm going to answer this, you know, a little bit more complicated. I think that you have to figure out what works best for you. It's kind of like Bruce Lee would say, you know, the, whatever martial art, there is no one martial art. It's what works for you. You know, if you're a guy that likes to get in and grapple, I'm not going to tell you to be a boxer. If you're a guy that likes to box, I'm not going to tell you to be a grappler, right? You got to figure out what works for you. But what I insist with everybody that I'm working with is you have to figure out what works for you and you have to use it. And you have to explain it to me because I think that it, every single step of the sales process, you need to have a plan and a strategy, a process for that step even. So for example, what's your process for prospecting? When we go on a meeting, 
I mean, I'm sure you've done this. You go, you're, somebody says, ah, Robin, I want to take you on this meeting. And you're like, oh, great. What, what, you know, what, what are we expecting to get out of this? And they're like, oh, we're just going to get to know them. I'm like, no, 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 no. Every <laughs> single touch with the customer, we have to have a desired outcome. Do we always get it? No, but at least we can work towards that. Okay. So I have a process for prospecting, cold calling, elevator pitches, presenting my USP, setting the agenda in a meeting, building rapport. When you go into a meeting, you don't want to jump right into sales. You want to build rapport. How do you build rapport? Okay. And then, you know, setting the agenda, running the meeting, getting to the end. And what do you want at the end of the meeting? Do you want them to agree to proposal? Do you want them to agree? What, what is the next step that you're going to try to get out of that? So it, that whole sales process, I think that you should have kind of some defined uh, strategies and tactics that you use throughout that. And I'm not going to tell you to use Miller-Hyman or spin selling or any of the others. You have to figure out what works for you, but you better have one. Um, and so that's 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 my answer. The The other answer or the, the second part of that answer is in parallel with all those tactics and strategies, something that runs in parallel with all of them at every single step is developing and building trust with the customer, okay? And there are strategies and tactics for doing that as well. But you know that nobody's going to buy from you if they don't trust you. And trust takes time. So you have to figure out how you can accelerate that and strengthen that. That was a long answer. I hope that made sense to you. <laughs> no, it did. And you know what? I, I missed mentioning your books. I th you've written two books. And I think if, I, if memory serves me correctly, you have the top performance sales, performing salesperson and you have the sales basic, right? Am I correct? Yes, yeah. How to, become a, how to become a top performing salesperson and enjoy every step of the way, because if you enjoy something, you do it more and you get better at it and sales basics. But thank you for, for, for that shout out there. You know, I don't know how much more time we have, but I, I listened to a couple of your episodes and I love talking to you, man. I can keep that okay. on as much as okay, you want. Cool. <laughs> well, a couple of weeks ago, you had uh, Benny Orr on and it's funny because I, I've only met Benny a couple of times and we've never really had a in-depth conversation. But like so many of the things that he said, I identify with. First off, you know, he said, I think his greatest project or greatest success was his family and his children. And that's how I feel. As much as we want to talk about business, at the end of the day, for me, when I look at my, my three boys and, you know, and, and my family, and I'm, I'm just like, you know, this is, this, this, is, this is amazing. And two of my sons have worked with me. You know, Marcus worked with me when I was at Wordby, and then he ended up at uh, Amazon Web Services. And Makai worked with me and he, he's working with an LSP called Ad Astra on the, on, on, the, on the East Coast. And so that's enjoyable to help them get their, you know, their, started, their start in sales. But the other things that Benny talked about was focus on your strengths. And I, I'm a big believer in know what you're good at and, yeah. and push that. Now, it's good to address your weaknesses, but, but go where you're strong. You know, if, if you're really good at, at event marketing, don't try to do everything. Just be good Focus. at event marketing. Just, just focus on events, man. If you're really good at SEO, <laughs> SEM, then focus on that. Don't try to do everything. Being a generalist um, is uh, a recipe for frustration and just kind of stagnation. He talked about being passionate. And I, I don't know if you can feel it from me. I feel it from you that, you know, I, I love what I do and I'm super passionate about it to the point where, you know, I can get a little, you know, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm talking with salespeople, like I said, if you don't have a plan for this meeting, if you don't, if you don't have a plan for your personal development, I, so, you know, you're missing something here and it, and it shouldn't be right. me motivating you. It should be, it should be from within the, the, the other thing he said was, you know, bring something to the table. He, he, I think it's important. Like I always ask myself, how can I help the, the, these companies that I'm working with? What can I do? I don't just sit back and say, okay, I'm going to wait for them to tell me what to do. And I, and I would encourage anybody out there to kind of think about that on a daily, weekly yeah, basis. Yeah, he said, produce value on a daily basis to the employer that you're working for. That is awesome advice. And I, and I totally agree. So, so it, it was good listening to him because we haven't had like a, a, a serious face-to-face -face conversation. It's just- Yeah, I really know, enjoyed I, that conversation with him. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, I don't, I'm sure you remember where he, I, I can't claim to have done this, but he helped, <laughs> he matched, make a couple- or help them get married, and then also yeah. like, get divorced. <laughs> and he like, helped them. He helped them with their divorce. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's pretty pretty amazing stuff. Yes. Yeah, so, so I'm a believer in show up with a positive attitude. Show up early. You know, I used to. Well, I still do to some degree, but would do a variety of sports. But I would go into the gym, for example, for karate, and I'd show up 20 minutes early, and I would start practicing. You know what most people do? 
they show up early and they sit there and they talk or they stand and talk. And then they wait for the instructor to say, okay, now it's time to start studying. I'm like, you just wasted 20 minutes. You know what I mean? It's like, why are I, you doing that? I, I think you should bring that, that kind of attitude to everything. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts, Robin? Look, I mean, if it's, and I'll just give my personal experience on this one, because I, obviously I can't tell people what to do. I can just maybe use my personal experience as a, an indicator, I guess, similar to what we all do. When I was a system engineer working for the telephone company, I was good at it. I was, you know, one of the best. And, you know, I had my CEO complete accident. I didn't know who the guy is. It's like, I'm a young guy. I joined the company maybe a couple of years ago. There is no internet. There is nowhere you can go on the portal and see who the CEO is. I heard of his name, but I don't know what he looked like. Right. And he showed up one day. He sat at my, you know, he kneeled beside my cubicle. I'm on AutoCAD and I'm putting a network for a customer. And I'm all consumed with that. I see this old guy come in and, you know, kneel beside my desk. He says, you're Robin? I said, yep. And he said, what do you do here? And I started telling the guy, I didn't know who he is. <laughs> said, after, after I told him a little bit, I paused. I said, sorry, who are you again? He told me his <laughs> name. He told me his name. I said, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> different oh, different you've tactic got, now. You've got the same name of our C as our CEO. <laughs> <laughs> different tactic now. So yeah. I switched and I, and I started explaining to him. He said, well, guess what? I said, what? He said, today, I want you to be the salesperson who does the sales pitch for one of the largest customers we're doing a pitch for. I said, wow. me? I said, I help the sales guy tell it right. You know, tell him what to do and tell him what to say and build the systems for him. Like sort of a system engineer now, like an SA, right? but it's more on the tech side. Yeah. So I said, I, I don't know how to do this. He said, you don't have much time. Basically, you got a couple of hours <laughs> to study the slides. No, I said to him, I'm, I built the slides. I gave them to the sales manager. So yeah, I'll do them. So I, I agreed to do them. I think it was like a million dollar back then per year kind of customer. Wow. So I go into this boardroom and this boardroom is full of people. And, <clears throat> and he said to me, you know, I said, so what, before I go in, he whispers to my, I whispered to him, I said, what do you like me to do here? He said, win the contract. That's it. <laughs> I said, Dibble. okay. Dibble. <laughs> I'm doing, I'm doing the presentation, Mark. And you know, I'm telling them how the system works. Obviously, I'm, I'm speaking from an engineering perspective, so I'm very familiar exactly. I'm not putting any spins on it. I'm dry cut telling exactly what this system is going to do, when are we going to deliver by when. And then this, then one of the guys, like, I haven't finished yet, like halfway through. So he said to me, who signs a contract for this? Like, do we talk to you or we talk to somebody else? Now, before I went in, because he addressed me as a salesperson, I have printed a sample contract. And I put it in my briefcase. So I just in my briefcase. I said, here's the contract, sir. Would you like, you know, and the, the conversation was finished. Now on my way out, the, uh, my CEO, it told me he became my, um, my executive mentor later on, et cetera. He told me at the time, he says, from here on, you're a salesperson and that's it. That's awesome. I said, I said what, what happened to my tech job? He said, we'll get somebody else to do that. You're good at it. That's it. That's that's a that's a inspirational, motivational story, man. I love that. And and the reason the whole, later on after we became friend, I said, you know, I said to him, and he's still like once in a while like we talk. And uh, I said to him, so why did you do that? He said, you're, you know, from a tech, you know, from the company he managed and had like twelve thousand people. He said, very few salespeople ask for the contract during a sales pitch because they're afraid. They're afraid of it. So <laughs> he said. Without hesitation, you reached out and gave the guy a contract, the customer, basically. He said, that tells me something. And I think we found a, at the time, I was like in my late 20s. He said, I think we found a gem here. And he's right. I progressed very rapidly to become like the national director for sale for certain products for them. And it was, it was awesome after that. That's awesome. I mean, there's so many ways and, and people feel uncomfortable, but it's... I think that if you have a, a a tactic that you've worked out and you practiced it, 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 it relieves some of that anxiety and it makes you comfortable. Um, I, I had the same situation. I remember one of my first sales roles, I was uh, selling uh, advertising and um, exhibition space. And I, I didn't know how to close the deal, you know, and um, I went with my sales manager and he said, uh, he said, you know, here's the, here's the, 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 the layout, which booth would you think that you guys would want? They'd be like, well, we'd want this one. He goes, okay, well, we'll lock it in. Here's the, here's the contract. And I was like, 
that's it. It's that simple. <laughs> it was. And, and, and so I just learned from that, you know, and I think that's another important, important part of that team selling or working with other people because you learn. Um, learn right. Yeah. The second thing is like for me and, and, and I always tell my, uh, whoever I come in contact with is uh, treat it as if it was your own. Mm-hmm. So if it's your own company, what would you do? Mm-hmm. And if you, if you don't put yourself, if I don't put myself in that shoes every single morning, and think about it as I own it. What would what would my behavior be? What would I do next? What what task would I do? And a lot of times it shows in my conversation with my customers. A lot of times customers think that I, you know, for people who don't use translation all the time or don't know the company much um, as well, they probably would ask me, and I have had this question many times, if I own the company. And it comes across as I own the company when I'm doing my conversation with customers. And why does it, why I do that? is because when you speak with passion about something, you automatically own it. It doesn't matter what subject it is. Yeah. No, it's funny because I've actually had people ask me that too. They're like, so are you the owner? (laughs) Like I said, I wish, I wish, but, uh, but I think the ownership or excuse me, the owners or the leadership, they always appreciate people who, um, who go, who go out there and treat it as their own. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's some really, really good advice. Um, let me ask you this. What was the first thing that you ever sold? Ever? It's that contract that I told you about. It was oh, okay. a uh, it was a complete brand new network for a government contract. Okay. I sold so, that. It, and it wasn't on your first deal, dude. That's that that is pretty awesome. So in, in localization though, when <laughs> I first took on the, the, the job of localization, and funny you mentioned uh, you know, look up the uh, you remember talking about the um, the Amcham in uh, uh, yeah. And you take the book with Florian and you go through it and you dial. Okay, so my first job was started with Lexitech. Again, there's no cell phones. There's no nothing. I was given those brown Nortel telephones and a desk and a yellow page book, the yellow page yep. book. So I picked up the phone and started calling people. Now, I know from previous job, like when I was the national director for sale for the telephone company, you know, the easiest way to do is start at the top. I started calling some of the C-level that I know. And I called one C-level uh, CFO at a, an insurance company. I said, who's doing your localization work? And I was having like, I don't know the guy, but I got to a point where <laughs> two conversations down the road, um, he said to me, hey, I don't handle it myself, but there are somebody who does, who handles this, and they're looking for somebody. I said, okay, so who are they? So I called them. This is my first week on the job. Within six months, we were tracking about $800,000 billing per year. Wow. From that single from that single transaction, wow. right? So it's putting yourself out there and don't be afraid. I mean, don't be afraid somebody says no, taking no is like it's not the end of the world. It just, you know, dust it off and move on and go to the next call. I always say, look, you already <laughs> Uh, uh, people get anxiety or anxious because they're, well, what are they going to do? What are they going to say? And what, what's going to happen? And I, I said, like, I can tell you what's going to happen. They're either going to say no, or they're going to say yes, or they're going to say not right now. And so you don't have to worry about it, man. And in all three of them are good. If they say no, get out of my face forever, then fine. Then that now you're relieved. You don't have to worry about it anymore. If they say yes, awesome. And if they say not right now, to me, that's the future gold. Because the ones that say no, not right now, when you show them that you're regular and consistent on your follow-up, you're going to win their business or they will introduce some some other opportunity for you. So don't don't stress it. Yeah, don't stress it. And, you know, it's about activities, right? So you create activities, you close deals. And that's if you don't have activities, you don't have deals, period. 100% agree. So, hey, Robin. Um, I'm really enjoying this conversation, but, you know, we've 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 exhausted the hour and a little over. I, I apologize about that. You probably no, saw no, the meeting. I, I love, 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 love talking with you, and um, I really enjoy the uh, local, localization fireside chat. I mean, you're doing an amazing job, and uh, I'm honored to 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 have a chance to, to talk with you on your show. Hey, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining me today, Mark. And uh, for those who are listeners and uh, regular listeners on this channel, Please look up Mark uh, Schreiner at MemoQ RFP and give him a shout and get to know a little bit about MemoQ RFP and he's, he's, he's willing and able and he's got a team supporting him to educate, to support, to help find out a little bit more about what this software does and what this application does and how can it help you in your business. Mark, thanks again for being part of this conversation today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Robin. You take care. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the Localization Fireside Chat. Take the warmth of knowledge and renewed cultural passion with you. 
keep exploring, stay curious, and until next time, this is Robin Ayu. Keep those global conversations alive.